Hey there, film fans. I'm Jeff. I'm Dave. And I'm John. And welcome back to The Love of Cinema, a pod in which we'll challenge one another to discuss movies both new and old with a strictly positive critical eye. That's right. And to avoid any lazy negativity, we are making this a drinking game. Aha. Drink. Drink. Any negative criticism about a film is allowed, but it will be called out for with this dramatic sound. <laughs> Which means that we either said something negative or stupid, and we must, therefore, take a drink. You're going to hear that a lot. Must. (laughs) Must. So, pour yourselves a glass, join us, and give it up the films we love, and perhaps the films that need some love. This week. Movies of 2001. 2001. (laughs) We are talking about some uh, films from 2001. I did not choose any of these because I was at camp last week, but I have been. Yeah, how was your week off? How how was your week off? Every time we bring up why you were away, it's different. It's like the joke is always something a little different. Yeah. I'm happy to be back. I was very, very, very happy for Jack to fill in for me last week. That was super nice of him. It was cool. Thank you, Jack D. Thank you, Jack D. That was awesome. Thank you, Jack D. Um, Shout out to the uh, Charlotte uh, Radio Network area. Woo! We're back, baby. We're doing this. And we got some films from the year 2001 to talk about. But first, I'm going to kick it over to John for a couple shout outs. Mm. Oh, yeah. The shout outs. You know, the guy, he's got all the beer. We love him. I miss them. His name is Carlos Barroza. You can give him a follow on Instagram. The handle is cbarroza bar 2019. That's C-B-A-R-R-O-Z-O-B-A-R-2019. And as always, the music you hear on this episode and every episode is provided by the artist Dasein. That's Dasein, D-A-S-E-I-N. You can find all the music available for free downloads at soundcloud.com forward slash Dasein dash artist. It took 26 episodes for John to be able to spell those without looking. Nailed it. <laughs> that was the first Nailed time that. that I just, was first time I was, yeah. I was, I didn't even have my phone. I was like, God, I hope I remember this. That's <laughs> all right. So Fuck. 2001 film year. Yeah. We're going to get to it. Sorry about that. In a second. Let's do a quick round of what you guys been watching. What you been watching? Any news? Any watchings? Any news, Dave? Obviously the movie. You know what, guys? Let's just. Do you want to talk about? Yeah. Let's just share what we've been watching first. And then we can chit chat about some big things that happened this week. Um, We saw. We watched The Thing last week. So it got me on a bit of a horror kick. I watched um, the, the original Amityville horror, which I had not seen before. Ooh. That was fun. Yeah, that's fun. Yeah, it was yeah, it was cool, dude. I had not seen that one. I don't know how I missed that. And uh, rewatched Insidious just because I was feeling like scaring myself. That That's was fun. That was pretty yeah. good. I think I remembered having even more fun in the theater, but it's still a good modern horror movie, James Wan. Um, yeah, and then I watched these three, and then I've been watching, following the politics and the news and stuff. It's been quite a week. How about you, Dave? What do you watch? I did not follow the politics and the news. I got no skin in the game. I got no interest in this at the moment, really. It's a it's, it's circus, man. What are you guys doing over here? It's a, uh, it's a racket. Yeah. It's a racket. I, uh, I, I've been getting into Doom Patrol uh, now that it's swapped over to HBO Max. It's, Sorry, it's, did you, did you, you say Paw Patrol? No, Doom Patrol. Oh, right, yeah. right, right. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's basically uh, a collection of heroes who are just absolutely shit at their job. Uh, it's random, it's dark, it's the other side of DC you don't see often. Um, and it's, okay. it's, a, it's, a fu- it's not for everyone. It's, it, you, like, if you don't like weird, weird, weird stuff with the most out there references you've ever seen, um, don't watch this, but it's, it's fun. If you, like, if you like that weird stuff, give it a look. I uh, rewatched Wonder Woman and went all oh, yes. the way oh, back and rewatched The Last Starfighter. 
the last wow. one. Starfighter. Oh, wow. You did go back. Yeah. Yes, you did. <laughs> Dave loves some <laughs> nice, DC. Dude. Dave, you love DC. I, yeah, I do. I got a soft spot for him. Um, great. I actually thought when you said Dune Patrol, what that was is that you patrol the internet for that Dune trailer that's coming <laughs> yeah. out this week. <laughs> and September uh, 9th. <laughs> Wednesday. Uh, yeah, Wednesday, yeah, September 9th. 9th. Oh, like so they're only going to show it in cinemas, too. You watch. Right. That is Dune so with Timothy Chalamet, Rebecca Ferguson, directed by Denny Villeneuve. Shout out to our Arrival podcast from a few weeks ago. Um, you know, anyway, I think they're yeah. actually going to be showing that trailer before Chris Nolan's movie. I don't know yeah, if you've heard are. of it before. Yeah. It's called Tenet. What's oh, it called? It's Tenet. It's called Tenet. Oh, Tenet. Tenet. Right. Yeah, Tenet. When's, when's, <laughs> when's that coming out? I swear I just saw an article where they were like, oh, um, and then the trailer, which was released in August, finally showed uh, Robert Pattinson dealing with the time-changing elements of Tenet. And I was like, man, that first fucking trailer came out a year ago. I, I've known about this time-shifting shit about Tenet for a fucking year, yeah, right? Also, like, we know about this. Don't make a decision yeah, whether or not to see this by the third trailer. I didn't like the third trailer. The second trailer is way better. Yeah, I agree. Um, anyway, they're unrolling some Tenet stuff. Anyway, I, I watched Plus the one- third trailer. Yeah. <laughs> I watched. Well, I didn't have. To, I didn't have to watch any of the. I didn't have to. I, I didn't mean to say it like that. I didn't watch any of the movies you talked about last week. Although I had seen Grease two on television a few times oh, in I'm the nineties, two thousands. Don't get me started. Um, so again. it's the wrong one to have seen, dude. Yeah. So I, I did a little family vacay. I had two birthdays in the family and a fortieth wedding anniversary. So we were very, very, very Ooh. busy the past two weeks. A little traveling around and such. So I did watch one film for pleasure, which was. Edward Norton's Motherless Brooklyn available on HBO and HBO Max. And I give I give it a it? I shout it out. I mean, Edward's one of my favorite actors, right? I, I love him so much. Um, it's he's he, he wrote and directed this. He adapted it from the novel of the same name. Great cast, Willem Dafoe, Alec Baldwin. It's it's really, really great. It's a crime thriller. He's a genius with Tourette's. That's a PI. But I and with Bruce Willis is sort of like his mentor who dies, and he has to try interviews. to figure out. There's there's a lot of puzzle find you know he's he's sort of following the story there's a lot of different puzzle pieces that he's putting together and he has Tourette's but he's brilliant so it's fun I don't know if it sticks the landing I don't know if it really has the payoff for me to justify recommending a two and a half hour movie but I love Edward Norton if you really like Ed and you're feeling it give it a shot why not it was it was like a seven mm-hmm. out of ten um yeah and um that's uh that's about it let's get into the film film year of two thousand one actually just before we do we got to take a moment Chadwick Boseman oh, yeah. Yeah, let's talk Jack. about it for just a second. What a, I mean, what a human being. Let's and all take a little a, drink yeah. of silence here yeah, what for a, the man. Sad loss there. Yeah, I, I really didn't believe it. So this is Friday night was the news. This would be August uh, 28th. And I think I was going to bed at 1130. And, and I feel like all the articles were like, it's been confirmed. It's like we have, this is actually really happening because I think, it was hit, it was not hidden it was kept from the public so yeah. that it wouldn't be a part of his I mean, personal he, narrative he kept it from a lot of people a lot of people didn't even know um but like what was it five movies he's visiting sick kids in hospital he's doing press tour- yeah. tours he headlined he's the first s- marvel movie to nominate it for best picture while fighting cancer he- like what a fucking guy He's at mm-hmm. St. Jude's Children's Hospital to cheer up kids with cancer while he's recovering from cancer. Like, what What a legend. Yeah, hat, legend. hats off. Like, there's there's no words I can say that I'm, I'm not eloquent enough to, to justify how right. good this guy was. And it is and, crazy. I mean, I don't, you know, I'm not going to make it about race and stuff. But, like, I remember when I, when I first did my deep dive and watched his entire canon, basically— so we have 42, Marshall, Get On Up, obviously Black Panthers. Um, I'm forgetting one of the popular ones. Defy Bloods, um, we did. We watched this here. 
to Five Bloods. Yeah, he came out with that one. There's another historical one that I thought he did really well. So anyway, I don't know. It's just crazy. Like he already, in, you know, in my opinion, proved himself to be, he was one of the best yeah. and he was never nominated. Mm. Like it's going to be hard for uh, people to wrap their head around that when they hear his story and they see his canon of work that he all did. He did before he was 43 years old and he didn't even really get his due. I don't think I'm so happy that everyone and went to go see Black Panther twice. And I'm glad that everyone knows that he's the man. And that movie is great. But he did amazing, serious adult dramas yes, he did. playing very, very serious characters, historical black leaders. And I don't think he got his due. I don't think anyone paid him as much attention as they should have until he became Black Panther King T'Challa. I recommend everyone to go out and watch all the movies that he did leading up to that point because he is on fucking fire from age like 28. It's crazy. He was just crushing it, doing really mature work. And I, I always I always felt like he had this, and it's it's not because he, he didn't get diagnosed until 2016. He always had this incredible humility and like vulnerability in his work. And, you know, it's just kind of sad to see, of course, mm. you know, the tragedy of how he ended up going out, but like the life he lived and the work he left behind. He didn't have that. He had something a little softer than you know, a lot of leading men have. He was accessible with his instrument. I always felt like I could approach him as an audience member. He didn't seem too hot. He didn't seem too alpha, too strong, too something. He, like, mm. he was right there. He was so present. I just love his work. I yeah. think everyone should go back and watch his movies. It's definitely worth it. Cool. And I think the takeaway from this is don't be afraid to get yourself checked. Like you may be an excellent human being and we need those. We don't want to lose you. So do the right thing. Don't put it off. Don't put it off, baby. Yeah. All right, 2001. Yeah, we love you. Yeah. All right, um, let's do it, man. So, yeah, it's obviously a tough segue from that, but um, for the sake of the pod, we will move on to talk a little bit about what was going on in the film year 2001. So, um, starting with the top, the highest grossing films, you have Bang Bang at the top. You have Harry Potter 1, Lord of the Rings 1 coming out in the same year. That's right, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone or Sorcerer's Stone and Lord of the Rings Fellowship of the Ring. Both came out in the same year. Mm -hmm. You have Monsters, Inc. and Shrek came out in the first year. Ocean's Eleven. Yep. I, I, I'm seeing Pearl Harbor actually made a lot of money. I, I don't exactly know how that happened. Um, I, have, <laughs> I did see it. I didn't know it was Disney. No wonder. It makes total sense. Um, that sex scene really seemed like a Disney sex scene for sure. Uh, you had The Mummy Returns, Jurassic Park 3, Planet of the Apes with Mark Wahlberg, which was not as great as the original, and the sequel to Silence of the Lands, Hannibal, which I'm sure John is our resident expert on. Let's segue over to <laughs> award season. A Beautiful Mind was the big movie at the Oscars, uh, winning a whole bunch of stuff. Ron Howard, Best Director. Uh, you've also got Gosford Park. You've got Denzel Washington and Halle Berry, the first time ever two are two actors of color, one best actor and best actress in the same year. Mm. Um, Denzel for Training Day and Halle Berry for Monsters Ball. You have uh, Will Smith and Ali of I Am Sam, Sean Penn. You oh, have, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have, apparently Ben Kingsley was nominated for a movie called Sexy Beast. So I, I don't know in what planet that makes sense, but yeah, that, that actually happened. You have Memento, Christopher Nolan, and to wind it down, you have another a couple fun movies like Moulin Rouge, and um, yeah, that's that's probably that's probably where I'm at there. So it's a pretty pretty good year, all things considered, especially for commercial hits. But we are going to take a little bit of a foreign 
language excursion yeah, here. We thanks went, to John and Dave, we went, since I wasn't here last week. We went and also, I didn't have any say in these movies. And they're like, here are the movies. The, two of them have subtitles. And I was like, oh, fuck yeah. Okay, cool. So the first one, actually, I watched last summer. So this is, I've watched it twice now in the past year, is Amelie. Amelie, French film, which was snubbed at Cannes and became this huge story when it was widely, wildly successful in France and then ended up being nominated for five Oscars in America. Mm-hmm. So Amelie is going to be our first film that we'll discuss. Then we are going to talk about Guillermo del Toro's The Devil's Backbone. Really, really, really fantastic ghost story. This is the film he did maybe one or two films before Pan's Labyrinth, which was even more commercially successful than The Devil's Backbone. And finally, we're going to talk about Vanilla Sky, which is Tom Cruise in the leading role. Very divisive when it came out. Very Yes, very divisive when it came out. It's Cameron Crowe, writer-director, who you probably know from Jerry Maguire and Almost Famous, but he actually goes all the way back to writing Fast Times at Ridgemont High, and he wrote and directed Say Anything, starring John Cusack in 1989. That is right in your eyes, Cameron Crowe. So that is the third film, which is going to be our redemption film, because it has a negative rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Very, very, very divisive, as Dave said. But it's funny for us, because our redemption film is not usually the most famous, or maybe, or maybe the most recognizable <laughs> to some of our fans. I mean, maybe Amelie is. But anyway, it's, it's, it's going to be interesting to give it another look, because we're probably not going to shit on it the way we shat on Grease 2, even though... Grease 2 it, deserved it. it. Yes. <laughs> So anyway, why don't we get right into Amelie? So the pitch, Amelie is a French film about uh, a girl named, guess what? Amelie, whose childhood was suppressed by her father, who was a doctor, uh, thinking she had a heart defect. But the truth is she had no physical contact when she was younger. So whenever her father would get close to her and put the stethoscope against her chest, her heartbeat would get raised she would have a higher heartbeat and so it sounded like she had a heart flutter so her dad was really worried that she had a heart defect so he refused to let her have any human contact so she lives her entire childhood alone and basically in an imaginary life which we get to see a little bit of at the beginning yes and then eventually we get to see her grow up and become i guess it's probably early 20s i can't exactly remember her age i'm gonna guess 21 and she's working at a cafe in Paris. Her mom has passed away due to a successful suicide jump where somebody throws himself off yeah, a building her, and lands yeah, on her, her mom. Her mother didn't make the jump. Someone else did. <laughs> Correct. Yes. Um, and so her dad kind of becomes psychologically not there. And so Amelie moves on to become her own. But again, still detached from the rest of the world. But she's working in a cafe. And then she realizes through doing one strange act of kindness, which we can talk a little bit more about, um, she loves bringing people together in real life to show them that life is fun and beautiful. So she takes it upon herself to, to give people joy and excitement and set people up and, and, and you know, let, let people have some enjoyment in life. And of course, she needs to have some of her own. So then she struggles to see somebody that she really enjoys and try to find that same amount of love and joy that she's trying to help other people achieve. I think that's the pitch. Yeah. We're more of a feeling podcast than a let's break down the plot podcast. So I would say I did enjoy the feel of this. It has a really interesting style. Um, the director and writer and co-writer, um, Jean-Pierre Jeanette. I'm definitely Jeanette. bombing that name. Mm-hmm. Jeanette. Uh, he actually used to work in animation. So it, it had it's quirky pictures. You talk. Uh, there's a lot of voiceover narration. 
that is discussed. So they, the first 15 minutes is just basically exposition where he's, he's telling us about Amelie's childhood and he's almost narrating this montage of sorts of her like very, very quick edits, a lot of high intensity moments that you get to see for about five seconds at a time. So it feels like it's moving along quickly, but eventually for me, it did drag. But ultimately, the whole thing, I, I did find it, you know, quirky and, and fun and stylistically pleasing and, you know, dare I say something like original. Um, and so I appreciated that very much. And I thought it stuck the landing at the end. So that's my initial takeaway. Does anybody want to take it from there? I'll go. This is this is a great rom-com. It is. It's up there in one of my favorite. Like it's easily top 10, possibly even top five um oh, of yeah. favorites in this film like you can it the, the it has a cinematic style that influenced filmmakers from that point like you can see elements of um like edgar wright's style in there i'm sure he's seen this film and picked up a few things from how this was done like oh, it's re- travel montages it's, it's, yeah. it's reminiscent like the, with the the fast zooms and the cuts and everything when they're doing the montage mm-hmm. section so mm-hmm. like it's reminiscent of sean the dead a little the comedy is dark at times and it just really sits in with the Australian sense of humor. I can tell you that um, <laughs> it's, and it's fucking funny. Like the jokes land. Mm-hmm. And oh, yeah. like time. this also, if you're looking at something that has fantastic shots in it, there is like, there's the bridge skipping stone shot um, where the stones were actually added in post because she couldn't skip stones. Um, there's like the shot where he's changing the light bulb and they're shooting down from above the ghost train. I mean, screw it. Every single shot in this film is almost brilliant. Every single shot. The the cinematography is really amazing. I love that almost every character has a crazy quirk. And that's what that, I think that's what makes them interesting to watch. Like none of these people are, it's not realistic at all. It's, it's hyper reality. It's something that you don't see a lot. And I love Yeah. Yeah, it's it's just like this film really absolutely landed in all respects for me. And I just, I, okay. Oh, he's, look at him, he's gushing. <laughs> oh, we got the <laughs> right gush the alarm. Bat. This guy Dave. loves it. Wow. Early right, gush alarm. I, no, 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 over to you, John. I mean, it's 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 well earned, dude. This is, uh, I, have, I, I have a close friend. You guys know him too, uh, Pat. But I have multiple friends who they have claimed before that this may be their favorite movie. Hmm. Or this is one of their favorite movies. So this is their favorite movie. Um, yeah, dude, everything you're saying, it, it kind of came very naturally out of Jeff realizing, like, you say the plot to a movie like this and you realize, you know what? I don't love this movie because of the plot. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. This movie isn't, uh, it, it's probably difficult if he had, if this was his first film, I bet he would have had a lot of trouble getting it made because there, there's a, there's his style and he has the style in most of his stuff. Um, I've, I've only seen a few of his other ones, but they're very similar uh, Delicatessen is another one. So he's got this weird, quirky, uh, whimsical kind of take with the cinematography and production design. And it's very quirky, like you said, and it just works. Um, and it's my it's it's proof that there's a million different ways to do this, of course, but it's proof that this movie understands what movies can do, that a lot of other uh, really successful films maybe rely more on story more on suspense, more on a big, a big name actor that is driving this stuff. He realizes that there are certain things that you can do storytelling wise with cinematography, with something like the, the narration that takes you into this, this world that is like the size of a neighborhood. Mm. And, and it's still super entertaining and compelling, but that is not because of the plot. It's because of the way he chooses to tell it with cinema. 
And I don't know. I feel like every time I watch this, you kind of remember, obviously, like if you've seen it once, you're probably not going to forget what it's about. Um, but you're going to forget how he tells it and all the weird, strange ways that he introduces and pushes characters forward that uh, otherwise, I think a lot of other people would not have developed any of these side characters. They wouldn't have felt like it was important to the plot. But we learn all these weird little isms and idiosyncrasies yeah. and it's, it's like it being, the things they like, like being, and they don't like. It's like you're being introduced to a small town. Yeah. By someone walking yeah, and around Yeah, and we've town. seen this, you know, we've seen uh, when we talked about, you know, do the right thing. Like, there's there's lots of other ways to do this. We've seen this done many, many ways, but his style is just so rich that if it rings true with you, I think it's impossible not to enjoy this film. It's just mm. too much fun. But I, I got to say, I know we picked, we, you know, we picked two of these foreign films this, this week, so I'm sure we'll kind of be having this conversation throughout. This feeling I have often when I'm watching foreign film, and I almost never have it when I watch American cinema, certainly nothing contemporary. There is no fucking way this movie would get made in America. Depends on how famous the director is. No way. Tim Burton tried to do that. I, th- I think, in my humble opinion, mm. Tim Burton tried to steal Look, this style for, yeah. Ali- for um, not Alice in Wonderland, for Charlie and the Chocolate, or Willie, yeah, for Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Sure. The, yeah. the way they do the voiceover animation, just that weird, um, they basically do like a lot of really cartoonish smiles to the camera. This is Audrey Tuteau is the lead. She does these weird quirky smiles to the camera, but the camera is filming from above. So it almost becomes like um, Alex from A Clockwork Orange, but it's stylistically quirky and silly as opposed to haunting. But that, a lot of those weird, like, direct-to-camera, but she's kind of looking up at her eyes at you. Um, and I feel like Tim Burton tried I'm to saying, do this I'm for saying, that and, and failed. So it depends. I mean, I, I, I know what you mean, but I, I do think a famous director. Yeah, I'm saying more about, like, the... Uh, I'm saying more about, like, the the pitch. Like, like the way you described it, like, if even Tim Burton... Like, that's Alice in Wonderland. Like no, everyone knows uh, that story. Charlie, if you were Willy trying Wonka to sit down, or Charlie in the Chocolate Factory, Ch- yeah. Willy Wonka, either one though. I mean, the, you know, famous story. Like if you were to sit down and be like, you know, it's about yeah, this girl, yeah, yeah. and she, you know, she finds, uh, she tries to do the right thing, and then she realizes she likes to help people, and then she kind of finds love at the end. And they're like, all right, so what's the catch? Like, is she like a wedding planner, <laughs> or is she like, like what's her, <laughs> what sexy job does she have that we can? You're like, no, no, no. This is just about this is just about life. Yeah, <laughs> like this is one of the most yeah. uh, grounded. Uh, it, uh, there's a weird paradox with this because it is probably one of the most realistic movies in terms of this is how it feels to be alive. Like you have your little things. You Maybe you feel a little bit lonely. Maybe you feel like you're trying to find your own little path and you meet all these people along the way and they have their own little things too. Sometimes we get caught up in our stories. A movie like this that is presented with such absurd whimsy is one of the more grounded things I think we've watched in, in a long time. I can't can't remember last time I felt like this was like, do, do you know what I mean? Like, it almost feels pedestrian, even though it's really, really strange and whimsical. Yeah. <laughs> Good stuff. Yeah. That was, uh, that was, that was great. No, we just thought we'd let you hang on that yeah, one. No, I, 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 get, I get what you're saying. And uh, it, it does. And it, it, it is very grounded in that, like, she literally works in a coffee shop. And a lot of the action happens in the coffee shop. And then it happens outside the coffee shop. And then you see these other locations that she goes out to and there's all these hyper-realistic, like accentuated reality segments where it shows her in a monologue or her thoughts or something like that. Or it, the narration needs to go off in a different direction. Like some of those side notes in the narration are hilarious. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, but it's, it's, what, always, it's I, always grounded back to her in her building yeah, so, at so her work helping it her. Is, 
it is grounded back to her. And I'm, yeah, I'm not disagreeing with that at all. But why do you think, what do you think it is about the way he tells this story and what this story is ultimately about? Like she is our, our most obvious surrogate. But why can we cut away to these random, strange little things? Like the man, the very first time when she finds the box of memories, you get so captivated by his discovering the box and then him remembering the stuff and taking you back. Every time he cuts away and goes on this random little reel where he kind of shows you what's in that person's imagination or what happened to them in the past. I never, I mean, maybe you guys yeah. did. I never felt like I was like, oh, where am I? Why am I, why am I going away no, from Amelie's no. story? Why you, does it work? You can get away from that. You, you can get away with that because it's literally a bedtime story. It's a narrator telling you <laughs> Amelie's yeah, story and the narrator can go off on any little tangent that he wants to. And it's all, you always go with him. I think I think if you like if good, you like dude. the anim, if you like the up montages like those cartoon up montages which by the way is every single person you love the up montages you'll probably at least want to give this a shot because they do that a lot basically is what similar to what you're saying and that they want to catch you up with these supporting characters and rather than you do a whole origin story he does it the way an animator would which is just really really quickly quirky things yada 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 in, in 90 seconds you got the story pretty much and now all of a sudden you're rooting for this reunion of this character and this box that they've been looking for for 40 years i do think he pulls that off really 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 well i, I i'm gonna be the slightest bit of a devil's advocate to all of our friends because i don't i do not care as much about the people in the cafe as you guys do now maybe on second and third watch i would give them more of a, a chance they, they do a really clever thing where all of those characters every single one of the characters in the cafe that she where she works and i'm going to include like the fruit vendor on on the street who by the way she fucking terrorizes uh in a very very funny way for sure but she is a monster to this guy no, she's not um, an angel <laughs> anyway um there are a lot of supporting characters and they keep them two-dimensional but you know there's a third dimensional sequence if you really gave them a shot they're not caricatures but like the one guy just records everything with this one woman says and then he switches women um, he records everything they say, and then he kind of is a predator, and he's creeping them out. But because of the style of the film, it's not really a creepy person. He's just somebody who's always in the cafe that's really hitting on this woman who doesn't want any attention from him. And that's pretty much it. So ultimately, it's like, I, I don't need his spinoff story. So he did a good job with that because, you know, you, you don't want more, you don't want less. You want the perfect touch, and he did touch it really well. I just, I eventually, I'd say somewhere around an hour to an hour and 15 I was like, I need her love story to get going here because I know that this is what is going to be the movie. The movie is going to be, it's her turn and it's an hour. We're halfway through. I have an hour left in this movie. I got to get to, I got to get to it because I'm, I'm losing it. And I'm, I, if you introduce one more character for her to like wind up, I, I'm just going to fast forward through it because I, I want to get to it. I did. I did get. That. Wait, I don't mind. <laughs> yeah. That's a shame. Dude. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't feel like you don't um, apologize for being Bosby. You're entitled well, to your and, and my final thing about that is, so Nico is the guy, and they never really talk to each other in the film. Very, very simple things, but there's just not a lot of spoken dialogue between them, which is a, a really good choice, and it ends really well. I loved the ending of this movie. Um, it gets to the point where Nico finally is going to come to the cafe, and he, she's finally roped him in through this like scavenger hunt that she's been laying out for him, which is a really, really good scavenger hunt. And I'm all about it. And something happens right before he comes where there's just this lull and she's sad. And it's like, all right, come on, we got to get to it here. And it's almost the director does this. Mon Let me see if I can remember what this particular montage is. Let's see if I wrote it down. I don't think I wrote it down specifically, but he's coming and it's so droll that he does this really, really quick, high energy, like 
like 10 second montage that I really felt it was almost like the director said, no, 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 no. I know I'm getting a little boring here, but I'm just going to pump you with adrenaline really quick because Nico's finally coming. Are you talking about when she said, when she said he, uh, because he showed up late, she yes, had two ideas it. in her mind for why he was because late. Because he was showing up late and I was like, yeah. I, for me, it was, all, this is what it felt like. It felt like the end of um, You've Got Mail, where Meg Ryan is in the park and the guy is late and you as the audience know it's Tom Hanks. And it's like, okay, when is it, when are they just going to meet? And Meg Ryan is just like sitting there and it's sad and it's boring. But that's the end of You've Got Mail. This, there's still 45 minutes left of this movie. And I, I'm like, okay, like I, for some reason, I don't know why. I know it's a very, very small detail, but I got bored. And so it's, it literally felt like the director was telling me, get excited again because it's coming. And it goes quickly and he leaves and it's not the love story. And so she goes into a puddle again because it's almost like, don't worry. It's still funny and it's still quirky. Because it's it's almost like he knew that that there was gonna be a me out there that was like, come on, I just I want it. That's it. That's my speech, dude. Dude, I pissed myself laughing at that sequence because huh. I mean hey. I don't know it I was don't know fun. You, yes, but it was funny. Like, it, it was funny, and it's it's what goes through your mind when you sort of get stood up or right. something happens. You know, it's like like it, your mind goes off on no. ridiculous fucking reasons that's, why they didn't show that's up. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, if they didn't do that sequence, I would have been bored. I was I was at, I was bored. They needed that sequence, and I don't know. That's it. That's all I'm saying is, is, is cool. without so, that okay, sequence, so a, if they so got to the cafe, I would have been, un, I would have been unenthused. Whereas if they did mm. it 10 minutes earlier. But did you feel, I, I, at first, I, at first I thought you said you felt a little manipulated. No, 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 no. It was good manipulated. he knew it was slowing down. Yeah, but that's okay. That's okay. 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 Good manipulation. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. almost like he's speaking to me and he's like, yeah, yeah here yeah. it comes. I know. Let's get excited again. Anyway, yeah. that's up. That's no, my No, I know what you mean. It's like this story, this story thing is like, um, I don't know. I, I finished this and I was like, oh, I haven't had that feeling. Well, I haven't watched like some good, like really good foreign film in, in too long. And I remember thinking like, I haven't, I haven't remember the last time I was just sitting there totally absorbed into like, I'm not, I'm not really waiting for what's going to happen next. I knew, like, I know, I know exactly what you mean, dude. Like you can, you can definitely track emotionally. You get about an hour, hour and 15 in and you're kind of like, is, does she have a love story here mm-hmm. as well? Or are we just going to kind of follow her and observe these people in her, the way she sees them? Mm. Um, but it didn't bother me. Great. So as soon as I sunk into it, there was, the, there was a piece of me that, you know, especially nowadays we're being nurtured with this, this, uh, next, next, yeah, next true. mindset with series Definitely. of like, just like we're doing, it's like uppers all day. Like we just want next, next, next. We want to have that next fix. This definitely, I had to switch gears, but as soon as I switched gears by the end of the film, I was like, well, I haven't had that kind of just sink yeah. into a feeling in a while. And I think he achieved something that's really unique. Um, uh, it's, it's pretty obvious with the way he introduces the film and the way he tells it and stuff. But like, I don't know. I just can't stop thinking about how he showed us a billion little things in life, tiny little yeah. things, little characteristics of different people and her and the way she sees stuff and the way people's approach things thought process wise. And then on top of that, he was talking about love, obviously. Mm. So this big message of like, how does the little, do all these little things like make up, you know, the big picture, the gestalt of love, or was he saying that like, there are, there is room for big things like love and life feels like little things, but either way, like it, I remember, I don't know. I just kept going I mean, back this, and thinking like, this, this, this feels also, like how it feels to be alive. <laughs> yeah. It's also like, it starts off letting you in on that. It's like well, this on this, at this time, this was happening at this time, this person was doing this, this person yeah. was doing that. And then there's the massive event uh, as well that swells through the background of like princess diana's death as well like it happens at this time that's when the story is set so there's this massive overthrow that comes in occasionally touches like just touches the story and 
goes off. It's not a major part of the story at all. It just occasionally drops in and like gives us a little kiss and leaves. But um, it like it's like no matter what is going on in the world that is massive, there's the little things are still happening. Right. And the little, yeah, the little things think- matter more. <laughs> In some cases, yes, that's that's what I'm saying. That's what, I think that's why he, again, it, uh, I'm I'm just going to reference "Do the Right Thing" for since we talked about it on this podcast. Um, I guess that dealt with little things too. It's just those issues were huge to those people, mm. but that was just a day in the life for them, right? Like we've talked about day in the life movies before. This went even like deeper. I felt like like cerebrally, like it was it was the tiniest little interests and isms that these characters had, and. I don't know. It ended up creating this this giant, bigger story that I thought was really interesting. I'll also say this. Uh, I could not stop thinking about this. I was kind of sad we didn't pick this movie. I totally forgot about it last week. Another foreign film, Ito Mama Tambien by oh, yeah, that um, was this year. Alfonso yeah, Cuaron came out this year as well. And he uses a very similar technique uh, that got really famous with Godard, with this kind of narrative uh, narration tool mm-hmm. that literally comments on stuff throughout the movie that has nothing to do with the story. Like there, what, there is something that is very, it, I don't know, again, that's like a cinema thing. I don't know if that would have read well for me if I had read a novel and they kept just for no reason at all going yeah. away and talking about yeah. the rest of the world if it wasn't playing into supporting the story. But for some reason, like cinema-wise, it just built this, it's just very successfully, this movie and that movie just built this really good um, foundation so that I was never, ever surprised when he departed from Amelie's mm. perspective mm. and went into some random fucking thing. And there you're right, Dave, all the little throwaways, the, just the film production, the, the detail mm. that went into all yes. those little random montages yeah. was incredible. The Zorro, I love the Zorro also, also one, one thing from a technical note as well, this is one of the earliest films to use digital color grading. Wow. Like this okay. was like, uh, the, the actual, nice, the actual first one that was a beautiful. The first one that was hundred percent digital was, Oh brother, where art thou? Hey, we gave him a shout out yeah. two weeks ago. And you know, I know I'm gonna say like I I love that movie too, but like you can fucking tell with that movie, it almost looks like it looks fake. Like they they wanted it to look like this is not supposed to be realistic. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think it was like new Brother technology and no one had any restraint yet. They were just going for it. This looks this looks yeah. fucking good. Well, it I still mean, looks very stylized, but I thought it was like right. I felt like I was in a grounded film. I didn't feel like I was in an acid trip Odyssey no, no. Coen Brothers epic. No, the, red, the, green the, and the only time it the only time it's sort of pulled you out of it is the one season the one scene where it's raining and she's at the the market yes. and that's all in color but everything else else that the rain is touching is green oh and yeah like the color just bleeds nice. out of the done. world around her yeah and i also I- want to say this real quickly i want to ask you guys uh casting wise this is her like big yeah. breakout um audrey Totu? Man, I have no idea. This French is the fucking like monolithic mystery. I think the whole time I was watching this, obviously it is so stylized. I just kept thinking like, this is just a lesson in why casting is so important. It really what is. What a strange way she performed. Like what a weird thing she has. Apparently they searched far and wide and it took you know a very long casting process and they ended up with going somebody unknown. And this movie would not work if she was not her. Oh yeah, they they wanted <laughs> yeah, they wanted right. a star, and the star was like, "I can't do this in French." Are you kidding me? I forget who it was. Do you remember seeing that? No, it I, didn't like, see that. I think it was, it was like Gwyneth Paltrow or somebody. It was, it was somebody that was yeah. Anyway, that was looking to do like something smaller well, budget. I mean, sorry, thank God they didn't do that. I, th- I, I think I think that's yeah, what I mean, it was. Gwyneth Gwyneth's wonderful, but like this is this is just proof in the pudding, right? Like sometimes you have things yeah, that are so it's always specific, mm. but sometimes it's so specific 
that if she had to try yeah, no to way. act like that, it would have just also, immediately the, fallen flat. Yeah. It was just, the voice, everybody was just perfect. The, the, the sound it was very musical. So that was something. And I, I really hope you don't think I hate it. Oh. I, I really did like this movie. I was just thinking, okay, the, no, the, the, the sound of, of the French language is very musical. It's obviously a romance language. Um, and so the way that she speaks with that quirk and, and it's like so lush and the whole thing is, is like sung poetry, you know? So it's, yeah, she she really nailed mm-hmm. that style too. Even something as similar, she'll say one word. Like the orgasm sequence is pretty famous, where she's she's very she's very um, she has acute senses, so she can hear what's going on. So she'll listen out her window to see how many people are orgasming at the same time, and they do this very very quick orgasm sequence, and then she just goes oh or whatever, which means fifteen. Again, French is fucking anomaly to me, but she but but the way she like turns French. to the, the thing and, and you're like, you don't know who this girl is yet. She's yeah. young, naive, doesn't have human interaction. Is she excited by this? Is she's not? And literally like a one syllable word is just like bam. It's it's like the end of day in the life. Yeah. <laughs> Boom. Like every single time she yeah. speaks. Yeah. It, it's really, really special. All right. It really is so, like yeah. her charm is to, her charm is uh, is unreal. I mean, to wrap it up, I, <laughs> but she's got the chops too. I, like when she gets sad at the end, oh, sorry, yeah. I'll let you take it out of way. Yeah, this when she gets sad at the end, like you can see, like oh shit, it's not just charm and charisma and funny edits. This girl can act. Yeah, this girl can fucking act really yeah. well. When she gets sad in those moments at the end, you're like, holy shit! I, I fucked up. It was Emily Watson, not Gwyneth Paltrow. Emily Watson was considered for Emily. Sorry. Oh wow, what an interesting yeah. desire. Sorry, Dave, Dave, bring it home. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, I think Take it this, away, I, in, in short, this is the. I think this is the film you need to watch right now. We all need this. It's Absolutely. it's a feel. Yeah. It's an absolute yeah. feel good. HBO, HBO Max, Medicine. Yes, get in there. Mm. Absolutely, what good call, Dave. This will open up your heart. It, yeah. You know, your heart's going to grow three sizes you, you after watching you this. You don't movie. know it yet, but you need this. Yeah. Um, yeah. Awesome. Well, we are going to take a quick pee break, and then we are going to refill and come back for a little Devil's Backbone, some Guillermo. We're back. We're back. We're back. <laughs> we are back. We have talked about Amelie, which is fucking great. Everybody give it a shot. Let us know what you think. You can find us on all of the socials, which are stamped in the episode description, wherever you are listening to this. Spotify, Podcasts, Podbean, Apple. Find us on the socials. Give us shouts out. We are going to be talking about The Devil's Backbone. This was What's written... the handle? What's the handle? What's the handle? No, don't do the handle. Nobody's, nobody has a notepad in front of them. Don't do the handle. Just copy and paste that shit know and get us though. online. Nobody is doing that. Nobody is writing this down with like their like fucking stencils or whatever. Nobody's pausing. Nobody's stopping whatever they're doing <laughs> to write down the socials. Find us on the socials. We're fucking fun. Do hang. not pause right. the podcast and write this down. <laughs> yeah, keep it going. Don't lose the momentum. We are just about The Devil's Backbone, co-written and directed by Academy Award winner Guillermo del Toro, who, whether he likes it or not, is always going to be known as the guy who gave us the fish fucking movie, <laughs> Shape of Water. <laughs> although, oh, damn. <laughs> although his best film is definitely Pan's Labyrinth. But we are going to be talking about the Devil's Backbone, which is the English translation. This is a film in the Spanish language. It was produced by John's boy, Pedro 
Almodovar, I think is how you say that last name. And his brother. And his brother. Both of them together. um, The Almodovars, right? This is well over a decade after Women on the Verge and a lot of other of his successful movies. Guillermo del fucking Toro. This is about a boy. That's his official middle name, too. (laughs) 1939, (laughs) the last year of the Spanish Civil War. I think other things were happening in the world in 1939 as well. But we're specifically looking at the Spanish Civil War. You have a boy named Carlos who gets dropped off at an orphanage um, that is also sympathetic to the Republican forces, which are in this country, it's left wing Republican forces. And the orphanage is also hiding gold on behalf of the Republican forces that are in charge to basically protect the gold standard, their their national treasury, their currency, is being held in this mm. orphanage. And it's basically in the middle of a desert. So the entire thing takes place in basically one or two buildings in the middle of a desert in the middle of um, the Spanish Civil War, 1939. And it turns out the orphanage is haunted. And the ghost, we find out pretty early on, may or may not have ties to a boy who is no longer at the orphanage. Was the boy killed? Did the boy die? Did the boy run away and come back? We don't really know. Is that the boy that's the ghost? That's my tease. Um, But this new boy, Carlos, makes friends with Jamie, or Jaime, and a couple other boys after they try to they try to um, entice him to break a lot of rules as you normally do when you haze a new child in the orphanage. I only know because I've seen both Annie. That's and what Oliver. Jeff does to children in orphanages. Right. I've seen Annie and Oliver, so I know exactly what orphanages are like. Um, <laughs> the there is a man, a doctor who is running the orphanage, who kind of has like a love affinity for another lady who is uh, one of the head teachers in the orphanage, and then there is a younger, handsome guy for all intents and purposes who used to be a orphan in the school and then when he grew up he stayed in the orphanage he's been there for 15 years he's pissed off he's furious and he may or may not be the uh, villain of this movie who knows but anyway long story short ghost story spanish civil war boys orphanage pretty fun pretty fun anybody anybody want to start i know john is a, a huge fan of the three amigos which includes guillermo do uh have any initial thoughts you want to share i mean again it, um Okay, Dave. Guillermo del Toro apparently ran into uh, Pedro Almodovar and after he made a Kronos was his first feature. Yeah, 93. Guillermo del Toro. And yeah, 93. And then him and Pedro Almodovar met and Almodovar said, you know, I want to be involved and let's keep talking. And eventually he said, I want to produce your next movie. Took years to get this one made, of course, as, as always. Apparently this was a huge labor of love. Going over the little IMDb trivia here, this is one of those stories where he wrote it, you know, years ago when he was in school, and it took a very long yeah, time for anyone to, <clears throat> yeah, for anyone he to like get legs underneath this thing. Um, Guillermo del Toro, yeah, I feel like it's this is one of those movies that, as with all these guys, like they're you know they really are auteurs, and these are mostly children in lead roles. There are some Spanish actors who I've seen in other like Almodovar movies who are in this movie, but like. Th- this isn't being helmed by an A-list star, international A-list star. So with that alter mindset, you can't help but think about him when you're watching this. And as everyone learned who had not seen all of his movies up until this point um, with Shape of Water, this man has just such a unique combination. He's got a giant heart. So 
he's very compassionate. There's always a lot of love and a lot of humanity combined with this weird infatuation, obsession even, that he has with Fish with classic no. horror movies. Horror. I mean, it's but it's horror in like the old school sense. Like it's not... Um, it really is like those early Corman films, like obviously with the fish movie, you know, of course he talked about creature in the black lagoon, like in every press junket, just because that was what inspired that. But he grew up uh, becoming obsessed with those. Apparently he has one of the most, you know, largest collections of like horror movie memorabilia from like classic Hollywood. So he's just been obsessed with this stuff for a very long time. But when you watch his movies, when I was trying to explain, I, I was visiting my parents when I, and they wanted to watch this one with me. And they were like, is it scary? Or, you know, I was like, no, like, it's almost like it's a shame that we have to use the word horror. Or even when you say ghost story, it's a, it's a, it still sounds it's like a it's a suspense. It's, yeah, it is suspenseful. But it, yeah. even with the suspense, in a way, it isn't because you, you meet, you meet the ghost so quickly. So there are some, the way they eventually get to him, you know, it still takes 20 or 30 minutes before you're finally like watching him. But the main character, the, the main boy, the protagonist, is so fearless and curious about approaching the ghost that again, as an audience, you feel like you are getting to see this stuff pretty easily. It's not like we're supposed to be terrified of the ghost. So just like the shape of water, he gives you, he rides, he walks this kind of fine line where, you know, there is something supernatural, but he wants you to be excited and comfortable about approaching the supernatural. He doesn't want you to be afraid mm. of it. I mean, I think you the thing I, mean? he, I think the, the the thing I love that he does is he sets it up that it's like this is just coasting along. It's a story, and all of a sudden, boom, fucking creepy. And then there's this extra little reveal where it's like, okay, that was creepy at the beginning, but now I, it's been put in front of me, and I kind of understand it, so I want to know more. Like, mm-hmm. so it's it's almost like something that you would be afraid of in the dark, and suddenly someone turns a little light on, and you get a little bit of more of an insight into like the supernatural element. And you're like, okay, I'm not scared of you. I'm, I'm curious about you now. Yeah. Were, mm-hmm. were you scared? Not once. No, no, never. Yeah, so it's no. funny that it's a horror, that it's, it's billed as a horror film. Cause I, I certainly wasn't scared, but, um, and even the ghost element, it didn't, didn't really feel like a ghost. You know what I mean? It, it almost, it almost felt like more like, um, mm-hmm. like somebody in, in like, just like a powdered makeup chamber that, I don't have a good example of what it would be like, almost um like early Dracula-esque or something, like just a little something, yeah, even surreal. Like it didn't even seem surreal because it seemed very realistic. It seemed like the person you could touch, you could you could hang I out love, with. Yeah, I love the extra little subtle visual effect they had around him too with the floating. Yeah. That's cool. Flotsam, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, the the filmmaking is, is unreal, dude. Yeah. Like, I mean, this is his second film. This guy is already a, fucking master technically like it never it felt junky it was a low budget film too it was like three and a half million dollars or four million dollars let's just take a second for cinematography guillermo navarro <clears throat> yeah i was like mm-hmm. i love i seem to love it like the opening shot with the bombay doors unbelievable and i was like that that's a fantastic shot and i, I looked this guy up and from dust till dawn jackie brown spawn pan's labyrinth Stuart little hellboy zathura Two were the Twilight Breaking Dawns, Pacific Rim, and a Kanye music video. There's no accounting for taste on the last one, but yeah. well, we didn't know. We had no idea. <laughs> yeah. We had no idea. Yeah, um, but like this guy has—he's a master of his craft, and he just got better and better. And I thought that I, I'm going to even 
this is not a negative for like James Wan, like people, there are skilled yeah, people for sure who technically are really, really skilled filmmakers who make very, you know, contemporary horror movies and they're very good at it. The Conjuring, The Sinisters, Insidious, uh, Ari Aster. Clearly there is a way to do that really well. I'm not saying this isn't technical, but the style that him and Guillermo del Toro had in this one, mm. it was presented as though you were, you were supposed to take it as serious as any adult Oscar drama. Like you, it was, it felt the way it was filmed like we weren't trying to manipulate you into being scared of this ghost or to caring about this or that. It was just presenting it with right. such a, you know a refined what, you kind know of this sophistication. Was? It's a it's a haunted mansion film where the scariest things in the mansion are the fucking people. Are the people. So let's let's talk about this real fast. The 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 opening again, this is a narrated film. It has a narrated opening, a narrated ending, and kind of sets you up. This thing takes place in the Spanish War, like Jeff was talking about. So it opens with the line, what is a ghost? A tragedy condemned to repeat itself time and time again. An instant of pain, perhaps. Something dead, which still seems to be alive. An emotion suspended in time. So there's also, and I don't think it's indicative. I thought he really pulled it off. There are a lot of, when he wrote this film, I'll get there in a second. Sorry, I know I just cut myself off two fucking times. When he wrote this film initially, The Devil's Backbone was supposed to be like this chain. It was based, It was supposed to have a thematic tie to this chain of mountains that's in Mexico. When Almodovar got on board, he was like, we can produce this for fucking cheap in Spain. If you come over here and do this, let's manipulate the story a little bit. Let's set it at a different time. Let's set it here. And it ended up lending itself. It's one of those great stories where I'm sure Guillermo was like, I didn't fucking intend any of that stuff. I've been living with this script under my pillow for 15 years. And yeah, you're telling me I have to change it. And what did it do? It opened up this door. Mm. To having a line like that That's justify the magic a thematic, yeah, a thematic <laughs> parallel to the Civil War. Spain is was still, when this movie came out, even in the early 2000s, still dealing with the ghost of um, motherfucker. Um, what is the name of that dictator, you guys? What is the name of the Spanish dictator who had power until like the fucking 60s? You know what I'm talking about. Anyway, they they have dealt with that. For, yeah, you're going to look it up for me. They have dealt with that for so long that it is still only one generation away from a lot of people in Spain at the time this movie came out. So it ended up having this, this much larger commentary for me. Anyway, I was watching this child deal with this issue and learn about himself while the, movie, the adults in the movie were dealing with a war. And I was dealing as an audience member with the fact that this is the kind of, of storytelling and the kind of experience that you learn as a child of how to approach things that are never going to completely disappear. It's got the kind of introduction to, to phantom-like obstacles. How do you approach evil? Are you supposed to be scared of it? Is it in, is, are things inherently evil? Well, I love, um, mm. let me ask you all this specifically. Did it work for you when the doctor opens the door to let the children out? At the end of the movie, there is another ghost, spoiler alert, that's introduced at the very end of the movie. And you kind of get this, you kind of put the pieces together and realize yeah. he was a part of the narration this entire that, that time. Was, but it kind of comes out of nowhere. That was a bookend. It was it was necessary. It's it's almost like, um, oh, what is the film? Denzel Washington film where he the ghost is jumping from person to person. The demon is jumping from person to person. Fallen. Fallen. Fallen, yeah. And... Like that starts off with a narration and then it ends with a narration that bookends it, but it's like, it's a twist on the narration. But in this case, it was a twist because you didn't realize the person narrating was eventually the ghost who let them out. Mm -hmm. Wow. 
and the uh, his name was Francisco Francisco Franco. Franco. Yeah, that's what I was referring to. So he yeah. wasn't. I don't. And if you want to, if you want to, if you want to draw some real world parallels, Francisco Franco was a general um, who is a self proclaimed nationalist, uh, phalangist, monarchist, conservatives, and Catholics who um, were trying to overthrow the conser- the um, Republican forces. So it's a deemed here in Wikipedia, of course, as fascism versus communism, uh, a struggle yeah. of war, religion, and dictatorship versus democracy. I'm just going to go ahead and say there might be some parallels going on in the uh, world. Absolutely. How about how hilarious was that sequence? I don't have a hot When they drag out. <laughs> when they, yeah, right. <laughs> When they drag out the old uh, iconoclast, the Jesus on the cross, oh yeah. they pull out the pictures, and the doctor's like, "Has it really gotten that bad? Why is Jesus in the yeah, cross?" That, that was one of the best carrying lines Jesus the to the courtyard. Wait, there's Jesus in the courtyard and John <laughs> yeah. the Baptist in the parking lot. Is it really that bad? And they, is it really and they, that bad? And they, have we yeah. gotten there? And they're complaining about how heavy he is. All right, let, let, let's yeah. let's give let's give those of us that are that may be a little lost, and they know it's a ghost story. A little little context here. So the boy. Comes out of the orphanage, and the, and the the other boys know that it's haunted, but we don't exactly know how or why. And so the new boy, Carlos, gets shuffled into the kitchen, which is off limits. And then while he's there, immediately some supernatural things start happening. And now Guillermo decides to not go full James Wan and supernatural with this. And he keeps it more realistic, more human, I suppose. I think we've mm. been talking about it a little bit. Um, but there's a lot of that dark, um, almost Stand By Me-esque... Um, sort of like you have to earn your spot you know in the in the group if you will and he does so there's a lot of that relationship stuff how do you feel we, we talked a lot of in amelie especially about um all of the different characters and how um you know fun they all are individually and how you want to follow them and learn more about them did you kind of have similar things with this where it's almost like sandlot vibes like all of your favorite kids comedies or anything but now they're in this horror story together but you're rooting for these kids all of them did you have that kind of through line help carry you through do you think they really pulled that off i thought the kids were amazing yeah like not once not once did i go i'm watching child actors like yeah there was nothing that brought me out of this well what i would say too to you talk about how guillermo is brilliant and obviously a cinematographer is and the shots were well there were little little things that just prove you know what you're doing and, and you have a grasp on things like you know, when somebody looks down and then looks up and you can see in their eyes that they saw something, but you don't show the audience, you're not indicative. Mm. Um, you kind of let the the story grow, the, just the way they framed everything. But it, it's a whole nother level to get your third and fourth and fifth supporting child character, who's the 10th bill on the call sheet, to have a, to have a personality, to have a purpose, to have a say. So that when when that character hurts their ankle, you as the audience are upset that this 10th bill on the call sheet has hurt their ankle. And what does that do to the rest of the group? There is something to say that, that every single person has that through line. And I think Guillermo pulls that off, which is part of the reason the emotional through line gets carried really well, even though it's a horror movie that's not scary. It's like we're rooting for these people so much and the whole group in a way, even though they're combative. No, you're, dude, they're yeah. really, they're, you're totally they're right, not yeah. best <laughs> friends. That's not the, that's not exactly what they are, but they depend on each other and need each other. And, and, and it just becomes this very rich I, I don't I want to say adult, but very, very mature relationship. No, I very think, quickly. yeah, I mean, that is, yeah, that is the word. I think it's, we've mentioned like Tony Collette and Hereditary. We're going to mention like, her once a week. She's a hero on the show. From, from <laughs> the get go, when you start watching this movie, you realize everyone is taking this very seriously. Yeah. I feel like everyone knew what movie they were trying to make and they're presenting it like, like they would any other drama. And it's to get kids to do that, you know, it's just, I mean, that's a whole other level of in, impressive 
you know, casting and direction and everything. Uh, the, the children were amazing. Um, the adults too, though, like, I don't, I, I do not think when they went home at the end of the night, they were like, Oh, I'm working on this horror movie. They were like, right. no, I'm working on this very serious Gothic ghost story set in the Spanish civil I mean, war. That's the definition, a Gothic ghost story. Yeah. That, yeah, yeah like, that's, that's, that's right. Also, did, did you find there was a little bit of Japanese horror overtones in there? Oh, like, yeah. I feel like that was loves, definitely yeah. an influence. Yeah. 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 I mean, he is obsessed with that stuff. His Gothic, that, that Gothic thing. And it's almost like, um, and this is probably true of most Gothic ghost stories as well. When you watch like, the really old Hitchcocks like Rebecca and and stuff like that. Um, we've seen PTA, Paul Thomas Anderson tried to try, definitely pulled it off with like Phantom Thread and stuff. Yeah, there's he's a, okay. There's a, uh, <laughs> yeah, I know, I'll drink for that one. It's my if, favorite if, director. If, I, was I, was say, if, I, if I hadn't have done it, John would have. <laughs> yeah. like oh my God. Um, there's a, uh, there's a romanticism to it. And I do not mean to cheapen the 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 tale by that at all. I don't feel like, you know, sometimes you'll hear people say, we could talk about a movie like Come and See or some disgusting, horrific, realistic war story where we could say the term uh, real life horror and everyone would know what we're talking about. And it's like hard to watch and it makes you want to throw up because it's it's too close. It's a different kind of horror. This was still grounded and very realistic. Mm. And though, even though there were fucking ghosts walking around, it was very grounded. And yet there's a romanticism that he has just nailed for his entire career. But again, we, it doesn't we, cheapen we the horror that, at all. It doesn't cheapen it. Yeah, we pick something that has a major world event going on above it. But we're yeah. focusing on the struggle of these people. Again, it's the little things. Yes, dude. It's the Which individual is my, struggle that's important. That is like my... Maybe if you had to push me in a corner and say, John, you're only going to get to watch one kind of story over and over and over again. I'm going to want an insulated story, probably taking place in a confined area, and the overtones are from some giant big picture event. Mm. So they're, they're, you're hearing about stuff, but this whole fucking thing takes place in an orphanage in the middle of fucking nowhere. Yeah. One tiny little orphanage. Well, how about the... So it sort of also becomes a little bit of a treasure hunt. I mentioned in the pitch about the gold because it gets important. Mm-hmm. And they do a pretty good job. Obviously, we're not doing a good job in the podcast of, of keeping this sort of underlying because they, they they seem to be very neutral. They're just boys. It's an orphanage. <laughs> and they're hiding gold. So it's it's like... it's it's The entire premise of the orphanage is sort of built on a... Um, on a like a Chekhov's gold, I, I, I can't I can't kind of come up the words, but obviously there's a there's a contradiction in there. There's a problem that they're they're hiding a secret, and is the bigger secret the ghost or the gold? Uh, they're doing so many different things, but eventually I mean, you know it's gonna as, the yeah, gold as is you find co- out it by the end of it that the two are intertwined. Yeah, ex- yes, yeah, yeah for yeah. sure. Um, and so you know, I guess the idea is as you mentioned that quote, which I also had written down, which is, "What is a ghost? Is it?" Um, history gonna that's gonna repeat itself what is a ghost a tragedy condemned to repeat itself time and time again um this they these are the these are the good people not just because they're you know they like democracy but because they're a doctor and a teacher raising these boys in the middle of nowhere no families and they just want to raise these boys and they're hiding gold underneath to to protect the gold standard of of the way of the mm. past and and the revolution happens and obviously the gold is going to come into play. So do you did you like that kind of weird little element that gets thrown in where it absolutely becomes that? I, I feel yeah. like it was necessary. Yeah, absolutely. And not dude. just to tie it, it to just, the war, but yeah. not just to tie it to the war too. But I mean, some, even more so to to show the to, just to show I mean, the how there's no there's no there's no such thing as an absolute purity. 
Yeah, but, but it's like the, the two cons- it's the two consecutive narratives that are happening separately, yeah. and you find out they intertwine at the end, and it like it it's perfect. Remember when we were talking about Cable Guy and we were like, there's not enough, there's nothing interrupting the story. There's nothing yeah, messing exactly. with any of the characters. This is a perfect example of how, obviously this is a much more serious movie than Cable Guy, but this movie is much more than just a, a haunting because of that. And it, and again, he balances it so well so that it doesn't feel indicative or overbearing yeah. that he's trying to say like, look how bad war is and mm-hmm. look at how easy and susceptible we are to greed and power from the, you know, the young villain character. Mm-hmm. But without that, yeah. I think it would have been a, a way less interesting film. I think it would have felt more like, not a, a cheap horror movie, because aesthetically he made it so well, but it would not have felt nearly as layered. Yeah. Um, so I really oh, yeah. appreciated that, especially I mean, because gold is the, you know, at the time, it is the ultimate ghost, right? Is there a deeper ghost in human history than finance, oh, yeah. than greed? It is the thing that we'll never be able to escape. And I love that he ended it with the boys throwing the gold into the water with the villain. I mean, spoiler alert, but like, I love that it was, everything was buried, including the initial original sin, the greed. Right, and what's Mm. real and what's not. I thought that was so powerful. This this is also something, this is something that starts out as a a war slash ghost story. And it it has a turning point and it turns into Lord of the Flies meets Red Dawn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fuck like, yeah, yeah, dude. Yeah, yeah. I've seen William Golden like, all over. There is, yeah. there is a there is a point in this movie where the kids go, you know what? I'm not scared of the ghost. I'm fucking not scared of you either. Right. Well, and that's the thing. It's yes. like it's like in ghost stories, it's always the monsters come going to come from within, and which is ironic during a war time because you expect you know the, mm. the the trouble to be from the outside and and you want to be sheltered, but it's actually the inside that you have to worry about. But then it ends up not being the ghost from within. That's actually the thing that they have to worry about. The ghost is actually the thing they need to sort of make terms with i think they even kind of hint that in the 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 episode line which is like um he they need to get to the bottom of of what this ghost story is basically um so i I definitely i definitely really like that and another thing that may be important for people to know too is a bomb was dropped from the sky in the orphanage and didn't blow up so there's outside there's basically it looks like you know an oligay or you know any of the the hydrogen bombs but there is a bomb that is dropped it's huge it's maybe five feet tall and it is just sitting in the ground face up and so it actually also adds this donnie darko quality to it where you don't really know what's real or what's not so even though on the surface it seems very realistic it seems pretty straightforward i'm also wondering how much fallout 3 guillermo's been playing oh uh, yeah well Gar- i mean this is pacific rim this is hellboy like he, ser- he seriously loves like comic and he seriously loves video games and such but, but again how do you how do you you gotta you gotta tip your hat to him yeah. like if i were to we're working on a movie, you guys, and I'm I'm writing this down, and I tell you I have an idea to put the bomb in there. I think you would say back to me, dude, are you really going to, like, show the war by putting a bomb in the fucking courtyard? Like, we, we get it. There's a war going on. That's just filmmaking skill. That somehow did not feel yeah. cheap. It, no. it heightened everything. No. The way they used it, it became a character. Yeah. Like, the way the boys would try to listen like, to it, like, it was ticking the again, time away. It was a character. It's like, what's, what's that about? And then yeah. there was a payoff. I love, I love in, yeah. we, we should wind this down a little bit, but I, I love that there's a masterclass segment with Ron Howard, um, who Ron Howard's made some commercial things that maybe didn't nail critically as well as A Beautiful Mind How did to write this the year, bombs. for instance. Yep. 
<laughs> no, but in, in his master class, he basically goes, so we got two people, we got a chair, and, you know, honestly, that's really all we need to get started. And I feel like with Guillermo in this, you've got the gold, Spanish Civil War, boys, ghost story, go, just go, let's see what happens, right? Okay, what if a bomb drops? Okay, what happens then? And you, you, you go in order, whereas I think a lot of movies try to solve their purpose too soon. And so it's basically like, what can we do with these ideas and how can we explore them? How can they come and cross? So the bomb and the gold and the ghost and the new boy in the orphanage and the, the way they intersect is just, it's, it really is masterful. Like you could tell that 15 years of thought has gone into this film. Um, mm. I, I, if I were to choose, like if, if everybody's watching, you want to watch one of these films, I still think Pan's Labyrinth is the one to go. But he even said these are sort of sibling films. This film influenced Pan's Labyrinth, with it, which is definitely a World War II allegory. Um, it won the, the Oscar for Best Cinematography for your boy, Dave, for mm-hmm. Pan's Labyrinth or Ilfano, if you want. Well, des- well deserved, yeah. too. Yes. And that was a couple years after this. So I watch this, watch The Devil's Backbone. This is a master at work that knows how to do allegory and horror and, and, and do everything right. Yeah, really nice. All right. Really glad. Wait, Good stuff. Watch wait, it. Wait, Give it a shot. We managed to get through that without a gush alarm. Oh, I, I, I thought we were going to get you. I thought we were going to get <laughs> we John at the first time. We were so, we were so there, close. We were, we're so, so close. close. My right. finger was hovering over the button. Well, we're going to talk about uh, Vanilla Sky in a second, starring Tom Cruise, right around when Scientology really became a fucking story in his life. He was the Scientologist oh, yeah. the whole time, but this I is like right around when this was going on. Well, we'll give some more Tom Cruise context because it's really important for the, the film setup. But... First, we have to decide what year we're going to be talking about next week. So, Dave, are you ready to go? And just for everybody at home, we are actually going to open up the parameters a little bit to include some other years. So we'll see. Whatever we get, we get. Mm. Here we go, Dave. Let's see. Wild. 2000. No, I'm just fucking with. What? I'm fucking with John. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, I was like, <laughs> I John wants. John wants like the '40s so bad. All right, Dave, what do we got? Oh, I'm together. God damn it! 1968. Wait, this oh, is the shit. year. Holy shit! Wait, what do we even do? This is the. This is one of the most important years. Play this as the background. This is one of the most important years in the rest of this beer history. Watch uh, pictures out of revolution. Uh, read pictures out of revolution by Mark Harris. This is the most important film year. Oh, oh my god! My god! Fuck. I am so excited. We're gonna take a forty-five minute break deciding which films to talk about here. Everybody, go pee, get another beer. We have a great segment on Vanilla Sky coming up. Let's go. <laughs> We are back. We are definitely back. We have chosen three films from the year. That took a while. 1968. We took our time with it. Fantastic year in film. But you're going to have to wait until the end of the segment to be teased as to what those three films are. And they are all renters this week for free. So they're all for stream. So I would give it, try to watch at least one or three of them before next week. This podcast now has homework. Yes, we have. (laughs) That's right. Oh, my God. Okay, so we are now going to talk about our redemption film, or was it really that bad, which is Vanilla Sky. Mm. So we need to give we definitely need to give some context of this film because good luck. Jesus Christ. It just needs needs some some context. Okay, so the first things first is we got to talk about Tom Cruise for a second, and I think we should do it at the beginning. 
Um, Tom Cruise, this is 2001. 1996, he does Mission Impossible and Jerry Maguire. He's nominated for an Oscar for Jerry Maguire, and his career is is just shifted in this path that was going from Born on the Fourth of July and A Few Good Men, and now it's headed back into he is the number one leading man in the world, 1996. Then all of a sudden, he does Eyes Wide Shut in 1999, and everybody's like, oh! <laughs> That's where he's going with this. Okay. Um, and Magnolia, of course, for our Paul Thomas Anderson friends. 2008 has Mission Impossible 2, which, can we just buzz? I don't know. Tanks. Yep. Just, just buzz. Mission Impossible 2. 2000. Okay. So then he does 2001. He does Vanilla Sky. Cameron Crowe, who wrote and directed Jerry Maguire for Tom Hanks, but I guess Tom Cruise was a nice substitute. And it's about... A rich, wealthy playboy who was young. He inherited a uh, publishing fortune from his family. He runs three magazines. Um, He lives in New York's Upper West Side in the famous Dakota Hotel, which is the hotel John and Yoko Ono lived in. Yoko still owns it. Very, very famous. Huge apartment, wealthy. He drives a Ferrari and a Mustang. Obviously, it's like you need someone like Tom Cruise to pull this off. And he teams up with Cameron Cruz, Cameron Crowe again. Cameron Crowe, almost famous, say anything. This is a guy that used to write for music magazines. So the score is awesome. Within seven minutes, you have R.E.M. and Radiohead. So this is somebody that is ready for this score to be awesome. And what it's about is this wealthy playboy um, is is trying to figure out sort of who he is. He's sort of at a crossroads of, of becoming an adult. I think he's 33 in the film, although I don't know if you ever actually believe that Tom Cruise is 33. But yeah, he's 33. Again, yeah, he's supposed to be 33. Um, makes me really sad. Hasn't that course of discussions on the <laughs> yeah. internet? But yeah. Uh, yes. And and he he gets into a car accident that disfigures him. And with the drugs that he's given and everything, um, time, his thoughts, everything sort of becomes a dream or a nightmare. So really, this film, which is based on a film, a Spanish film, that um, is titled Open Your Eyes, which becomes a huge scene and a huge theme in this movie, which actually starred Penelope Cruz, who co-stars in Vanilla Sky. It's basically, is he alive? Is he dead? Is it a nightmare? Is it a dream? That's the whole thing. They don't even try to pretend like that's not going on in the movie. They don't even try to sneak it in. It is very obvious this whole movie might be a dream. It might be reality. What is reality? It's very it's laid on very, very early that that's happening. And the disfiguration sort of leads you down a Twilight Zone segment, right? So this car crash happens and his face is messed up. So he's no longer pretty or handsome. And he thinks everybody's out to get him. He's going through these delusional nightmares. So it is listed as an erotic thriller. I'm going to go ahead and spoil that for you. It's neither erotic nor thrilling, but I understand. I'm not the only person who said that. I did think that when I saw that. I was like, this is an erotic or thrilling. And then I saw another review that said that, so I have to shout them out, fuckers. But it's it's not erotic or thrilling. Eyes Wide Shut is an erotic thriller. This is not an erotic thriller. But it is in that, not supernatural, but it's in that element of dream versus reality really, really, really well. It's very, very interesting. And it's very, it's playing with Tom Cruise's public image to the point where he actually got divorced to Nicole Kidman during the filming of this movie and had to announce it to the cast. And it was like almost Ah. a part of the movie. Like he had to announce the cast and then they like started shooting and it just seemed almost like it was, is that real or not? You know, it's like that almost seemed like it was part of the movie. It's, it's very trippy. So anyway, the fact that Tom Cruise is the lead of this movie is very, very important is the moral of the story. 
Supporting characters, Penelope Cruz, Cameron Diaz. Long story short, reality versus fiction. Forget about the plot. Who yeah. wants to go Which, first with this one? Penelope Cruz stole the show for me. Right. She's, she was God, fucking good in this. And very different than what I usually see her in. Yeah. She's very like, different than what you usually see she her She is a breath of life. She's like the epitome of someone who just enjoys every single moment. And it was such a great role to see her play. Like, I've never seen her do that before. And I really enjoyed it. Yeah, she was like sweet and sincere and, and kind so and alive. nice. And we have so curious. many ties to this to the Spanish-speaking world, you guys. Uh, she is Pedro Almodovar's muse. Yeah. He discovered her and, I mean, I don't like that word, but she he, she worked with him early. So, like, I've seen her in so much of his work. This was the first time that she really exploded here. And, um, you know, I think it was well-earned. I think most people who've seen this movie, even when we saw it back then, if, if people who saw it back then, um, people spoke positively about her performance and Cameron Diaz. I don't think, I, th- I don't think anyone had an issue with uh, either of their performances. There's some issues with the movie though. So let's, yeah. I kind of want to start with this question to you guys. All of us have seen this movie before. I think all of us saw uh, it when I it came out. I hadn't. Oh, really? I, I've never I, thought, seen I thought you said Wait, you saw no, it. I've dude. never seen this before. What was that like watching it for the first time? Cause I was about to, talk to you about doing the rewatch because no, i haven't seen it since it came keep, out keep going and I'll, I'll throw my stuff into the end well oh, okay. so going into it this time knowing what it was about jeff same boat did you feel like like you kind of knew you remembered like i know he's like spoiler <laughs> alert obviously like sorry whatever he's after the after the incident with the car crash you find out that the most of the movie he's trapped inside his mind in a lucid dream. So yeah. you're watching this whole thing play out. So I, I obviously you don't forget that. So you remembered that going back into it again. What was it like for you, Jeff, watching it for the rewatch in terms of one big picture, Cameron Crowe directing? Do you think he walked us into that and executed the the play out of it? Right. pretty well or did you feel like it was too indicative or did you actually appreciate it a little bit more on a rewatch you know what's really funny is i literally wrote down in here very curious to hear what john and dave say having done some work in psychologically confused protagonist work <laughs> so i actually <laughs> it's funny that you're asking me this first because i literally was like i'm not the expert on the panel about this but what i will say is this is definitely a movie that if you rewatch friends which i you know i recommend that you do it, it, there is a lot of very entertaining stuff in this movie so it is it is definitely not a bad movie um but as far as your question, did they? What I think about the psychological thing about all that? I think it is important to note that um, Cameron Crowe has said, "I wanted it to be a sort of choose your own adventure of how deep you wanted to go in as a viewer. Where if you just wanted a surface level kind of romantic comedy, you could get that. And if you wanted something That's, deeper, yeah. you could get that too. Or if and you rewatch yeah. it, and if you're you a regular user, depth, if you're a regular user of Reddit, uh, you can see some people have chosen their depth." Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, and so if you, if you really want to go in there, that's great. As far as just watching it the first time, there's I, I don't think there's a way that that the the depth is psychologically like you have you get pulled in. You know what I mean? So I think as an audience, you have to do the work for some of that depth because it, maybe it's just now, maybe it's been twenty years that it's just not that it's not that crazy to to be so, yeah, in this mind yeah, field exactly. like that. Like, it's not I that don't think... scary or interesting that it's like, oh, my God, is this a dream or is it a reality? Honestly, about halfway through the movie, I'm like, I wonder if they're just going to tell me if it is or not. Like, I'm not sitting there going, gee, I need to start picking up on the All context. Right, so see, that's clues. the problem, though. That's the problem with this movie is that when you and again, he did adapt this basically from a, a famous Spanish film. Um, but when you pitch this idea, you're like, 
super compelling, interesting concept. Like the idea is good. So this is another yeah. one of those things of how are we going to play this out? I'm also, I'm Cameron Crowe in 2001. A lot of people are going to come see this and think it's a mainstream film. I cannot help but mention, we don't have to go into it at all, but this is the same year that David Lynch released another masterpiece, Mulholland Drive, where he deals with somebody yeah. that is trapped inside a dream. That's awesome. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying it's the only way to do dreams. There's, there's different ways better. to approach that kind of thing. <laughs> but I mean, my biggest problem with Vanilla Sky is that it is compelling, but I feel like it's a little manipulative. Um, as much as I love this soundtrack, I get a little nervous whenever I hear an incredible soundtrack and the movie's not as good as the soundtrack as it's going along. I start feeling like, okay, they had access to the money to put fucking Radiohead, Seeger Rose, Bob Dylan, R.E.M., everybody in this fucking soundtrack with back yeah, to back McCartney to back to back McCartney wrote to back. the theme song. He got McCartney to write the song. McCartney wrote the theme song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that by the time it reached the end for me, where it really started playing out, where there were already moments where he had to catch the audience up because this was trying to attract a mainstream audience. Again, unlike Lynch and people who I think have navigated the dream, we don't want you to know if this is real necessarily world until you either have to figure it out for yourself or until we give you enough information to make some kind of assumption. Cameron Crowe, I, I'm curious, because I don't even want to blame him. I'm curious if he felt like he needed to put it in the script the way he did, because by the end of this movie, he literally explains yeah. everything to you. Yeah, everything. And everything that is interesting about movies and stories that have to do with dreams is that there's room for you to project your own your own opinion on whether or not this was real or that was real or how that made you feel. You had to discover it for yourself. So just as a perfect example, again, this is a um, this is a spoiler alert, but they tell you exactly the moment when the dream begins. At the end of the film, they tell you when the dream began in the film. And you think back and you're like, I know exactly when that moment was. If they had not said that, this movie would be 10 times better. But if they had not even, told you even exactly though when the that, splicing happened. There's still arguments that? going on now about yeah, exactly said, what yeah. was happening in this movie. Yeah. Like, they're, they're, yeah. they're disregarding think, the fact that that was said. Like, sure, that was said, but was that part of the yeah. thing? Like, I, it's, it's almost like Inception, like, with the ending. It's like, was he in it or was he out of it? But at least yeah, but Chris it wasn't like fucking, <laughs> at least Chris, yeah, at least Chris explains to you what's happening when they go into dreams. And he literally, all right, that's a perfect example. Let's talk about that. Leonardo DiCaprio's character in Inception tells you exactly what he did with Mauve. Is that her name? Mauve. Uh, Maud. I can't remember her name. Maud. Marion Cotillard. Yeah. He tells you. He tells you exactly what happened to them in the past. He does not tell you what is happening to him right now in the present, which is literally what they choose to do with yeah. tech support that catches you up and explains. It's almost like they were. They wanted you to feel like, in case you didn't understand what this movie was about, we're going to remove all the mystery. And we're going to explain it to you. And you get to, you get to decide if you want to jump off the side of a building too. Yeah. It's fucking well, movies. Just, just so that we don't come across like we're we're badgering our audience who probably has not seen this movie recently, and they're, that I don't want them to think like, why are you? I don't even know that this movie is. Why are you, why are you yelling? Um, just just for just for to, to to really explain what we're talking about. I also took a note about the music, John, because I wrote down that the music felt a lot more like a, a 1990s Drew Barrymore rom com. Like it was, I said, it, 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 yeah, no, that's fine. 
for instance, actually, the, he does. So obviously, he has skill because we know that there's a car crash, and then very early in the movie, the car spins out of control into an intersection, and that's not the car crash. So he basically does that kind of audience gotcha. That's what you get for just assuming that the title, the the tagline, you know everything about the movie. So he knows what he's doing. But then when he actually gets in the car with, with Cameron Diaz, who's his, you know, F buddy. Who it, it, the, A lot of the dialogue feels like a two-hander did play, you, so you it's just, very heavy-handed. After everything we've said on the show, did you just say F buddy? Are you, are you trying Maybe not to get grounded? Are you going to buzz me for not? Are you going to buzz me for not cursing? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so his fuck buddy Cameron Diaz, but he's actually in love with uh, Penelope Cruz, who we only met once. So none of it's realistic because the whole thing is like you've only met her once, bro. Like ask her out again. Like uh, the more you hear about it, it's like I knew from that one day that love was possible, and it was like I think I, I could fall in love. Wait, I wait, think oh. I may have fallen in love with Penelope Cruz if I had met. Okay, fine, that fine, fine, fine. Once. Touché. Touché, touché, touché. But back to the music here. So he they do the thing, which is pretty clever. So you can see Cameron Diaz and he doesn't want to get in the car with her. And then she talks him into it. And of course, it's like he sits there for a second and he goes, OK, I'm going to decide to get in the car. And it's the last bad decision he ever makes. And then the music is like the cheery. It's actually a Cameron, Cameron Diaz is singing on the, the soundtrack. It's actually her oh, yeah. song. But it's like a chipper, cheery music. And then the car crash happens. OK, so maybe Cameron Crowe doesn't want to give us any depth he just wants it to be like he wants it to be like kind of fun and then he gets out of the car and there's this like american beauty type like guitar like like whatever ethereal stuff going on and then there's penelope cruz there who it's clearly not her like there's no question like clearly he didn't just get out of the car and this girl that he's obsessed with just happens to be in the middle of central park so it's not even pretending to be in reality but it also tries to like show him as if it's real and the music is very lush and it's very light. So as far so anyway, moral of the story is what I'm saying about the music specifically is it's proof that the director isn't doesn't know what the depth is and he doesn't know what the movie is supposed to feel like. So he's punting. That's, and I know Cameron Crowe's okay, fine. I, I'm I'm an amateur here. I am certainly I not. A, I would not consider myself to be a professional filmmaker, even the way that you two are. But this is Cameron Cameron Crowe when he says to me. You can get out of this movie whatever you want. The depth is there if you want it. I'm just going to play some really fucking fun music and this shit's going to happen and whatever you want. That's punting. And and I think you need to make a choice and you need to go for it. And I I don't think I don't think he did. And it's too bad because there's some good stuff there and there's some entertaining things in here. It just doesn't have the depth. It just doesn't have the depth. Dave, what, what did you think? Dave, did your first ahead. watch? Man, I, like, get in there. I had a great experience with this movie. I like. All right. All right. I actually yeah, you knew we on. were going to go I, here. No, go ahead. It was, I, I, it's very entertaining. I, film. The it funny really thing is, is I was, like, I, I heard so many people like bag this movie out, and or like so many people were, like, yeah, I didn't go see it, and I was so I was expecting absolute crap, and I came. It's not, it's I, not I, crap. It's not crap. It's not crap. And I was, I was like pleasantly surprised i was really really pleasantly surprised i think penelope cruz is a breath of life in this movie tom cruise yes he's an awesome camera actor yeah his phenomenal performances as he always does um cameron diaz is just a fucking psycho this is maybe Um, one this is one of her better performances yeah and she's really small role but she's good kurt russell yeah like dude the the, and and who knows what was on the page for that guy like yeah and whatever he was working with like not great lines see, yeah that was it's, some it's, poorly it's written it's a movie dialogue. like in the first five minutes you're like what the fuck is going on yeah yeah, it is, yeah okay. and so you're set up for that sort of environment and i went along for the ride i was like what the fuck is going on and then like this like i can see why people didn't get this because it takes some really sharp left turns 
that people know, might not be ready for. It's like you're going along one track and suddenly, bam, you're somewhere else. Yeah. But like I said, all, all that is explained. So that's a payoff for the setup in my book. So when we, have you, okay. Sorry, keep going, dude. Yeah. We just talked like about when we get, Like keep, when we get going. to the elevator right at the end, it, it, it is a payoff for everything you've, you've gone through. It's like, why is this happening? Why, like, yeah, but what is going like- on? And it's a payoff for a setup that then gives you a further payoff for the ending of the movie. So and- I think the, the setup is good. I'm totally on board for the beginning of this film. Yeah, I think it ends well. It ends well. I see. I, d- I don't. I feel like the the dream. Whenever you're messing with that dream aspect, the weirdest part about dreams, and I think the reason they translate so well to to movies, the reason it, these they you know this happens all the time. People mess with dreams all the time in cinema. It's it's such a an obvious parallel. Is that you can never be confident that you're dreaming in a dream. The reason it's always compelling, the reason Inception, you know, and David Lynch and all that stuff completely works. the whole point of a lucid dream, that you you are confident you're dreaming, you can control. That's what a lucid dream is. Then then I think they sacrificed the greatest storytelling aspect. They they sacrificed the, the mystery and the suspense of coming from, if he had had to jump off that building at the very end of this movie, not 100%, it would have been more interesting. It yeah, wouldn't I, have been a complete acknowledgement of his reality because the whole point is that it's not actually real. If he had had to do it on a leap of faith because he was, whatever, he was I mean, scared or he that, wasn't 100% that point, sure. I, like at that point, I still wasn't 100%. And isn't that where it's supposed to be? It doesn't matter if he's 100%. Like I wasn't 100%. Like, is this real? Like, well, is I was it, 150%. That was yeah, 100,000%. No, on, on, <laughs> on a first watch, I was like, is this something else like is there is there another twist or like and finally when he got to the point where he made the jump sure i was like okay this is going to happen and like yeah that needs to happen but up until that point they were still throwing spanners like i one of the things i loved was kurt russell's moment of realization on the roof he nailed that like when they're still on the roof and he like just suddenly this outburst of like mortality is home entertainment this can't be the future yeah, and I, I, I think like, that was oh, I think that was an yeah. actor going. I need to make this line good. Yeah, and he did. He did his entire performance. I mean, that, I, th- I think one of, one of the them. things that well, really I- nailed this film, like well, like nailed it to the wall for a lot of people, was Tom Cruise had just come off Mission Impossible Two, <laughs> and straight after yeah. they did Minority Report, and yeah. this is not what everyone was expecting out of Tom Cruise when it True. came out. So anyone who did go and see it is like, oh, this is not what Tom Cruise does. It has and a lot of those Jerry Maguire it's, close-ups it's, too, so it's, it's almost liter- like playing it's, with you. It's literally the polar opposite of those two films. And then also, this was released like Lord of the Rings came out four days after this, and Ocean Eleven came out the week before. Wow! So yeah. it never stood a chance. It didn't stand a chance, but it, it's definitely. I don't know. I, I remember the whole time I was. Because again, like I couldn't help but think like I'm rewatching this. I remember kind of trying to remember how I felt about it initially and then picking it apart a little bit with this time. But also like I'm with you, Dave. Like I I had Hmm. a good time up until I started to feel frustrated. And I think a lot of it was I'm going to blame Cameron Crowe. I don't think he he had caught clearly he had never messed with material like this. But I was trying to get as simple as possible. I was trying to get down to like what is the quintessential issue with how he is choosing to tell this story? 
and I kept coming back to the intermittent scenes between Tom Cruise and Kurt Russell in present day quote reality. Mm. You think it's his his reality yeah. for most of the movie, where he is being interviewed by um, Kurt Russell's. Did I say Russell Crowe? No, it doesn't matter. That's Kurt Russell's uh, psychiatrist, psychologist character. For, because yeah, Kurt Russell's like, you want to fight, mate? He's, he's the police psychiatrist. <laughs> yeah, and it was still, it was, again, I don't even like using this word because like Chris Nolan knows how to produce a film with all the sexy bells and whistles, but it felt overproduced to me. I felt like when he was writing the script, I felt like he wanted it to be super grounded and kind of gritty and a little bit uncomfortable with the realism to try to keep that tone of we're not sure because Tom is not sure. I mean, it basically mm. is Tom Cruise, whatever his character's name is, David, David, yeah. it's Tom whatever Cruise. his name is. He's play, he plays Scientologist Tom Cruise. And I remember just thinking, this is just, it's too much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I heard that. I remember just thinking, I remember just thinking it's, it's too much. They're doing too many camera movements. The coverage is out of control. They're, they're overproducing this film when the, the crux of the story only exists in whether or not he knows it's happening to him or not. And I feel like they were doing so many things with the, with the filmmaking that made me... Jeff, I'm so glad you said that comment because that's exactly how I felt. I made this movie so that if you don't want to go deep, you can enjoy the music. Yeah, <laughs> And if you yeah, do want to go yeah. deep, you're more I mean, like, all right, well, then the other thing, that like, means we're in shallow fucking water. You're saying you didn't know that how to deal not with this material. To go all the way. And that's, that's not true at all. There, there are, if you go back, there are so many hints throughout this movie as to what's going on. Like, but it's, it's cerebral. It's not visceral. Yeah, but it, technically, it's like if you're looking hints. closely and there's you really want to do the math. Every single song in this movie has significance to what's going on. No, I, yeah, I saw that. There's the one. But if where you can like, recognize that, then it doesn't um, work. What's the one? That, there's a nursery rhyme where the <laughs> next line is something about afterwards. like, and they like London there's, Bridge is all fall, and it all little, falls down. There's little um, things that just pop out at you, and you're like, "What's that about?" And then afterwards, you sit and no, think about so, it, and so, it's so, like, "I know okay. what you mean." Those Here's, little things, but those little things with the music, the needle drops, they worked better for me than the 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 constant. Here's popular music and the best music of our day. I feel like if he had taken it back and used about 50% of those needle drops, it would have been extremely effective. It just, right. at a point, it got kind of old where mm -hmm. I was like, my God, how many genius current contemporary recording artists can he shove into this soundtrack? It was just, it was just so... And, yeah. and they did all have hints, but it, it, the film was, it, it got clever. But here, actually, I have a question about the crux of this here. So I, I talked a lot that I thought, I just thought like he... He wasn't making it for somebody to have a visceral film experience. It was much more cerebral, and I don't even really know how cerebral it was. Maybe if you wanted it to be, it was, but whatever. If, if you got a piece of paper, maybe it would have been, you know, a nice night of homework. But, okay. Um, but back to the back to the line about a piece of paper. <laughs> fucking slide rule. But I, the one thing that this seems to be coming down to, which which is a lot of what a lot of people say holds back films like um, Interstellar, which I love as a film, but it's like. At the end, it's just love. Like I feel like with with Tom Cruise's character, what it what it comes down to after the crash and everything, it, it's he's trying to find himself. But ultimately, it's it's all about love. Like, does he love Sophia? Does he love the idea of what actual love is? Is that the reason he's alive? Is it to find beauty and art and love? And it's like, does he want the power play? Does he want himself? And I, I feel like it's just all centered around like love is great, so therefore it's worth living or something. Did you get a vibe like that? This, this is a question. I, I don't have an answer to this because for me, I was like, it's getting, even though you can get as deep or whatever you want with this film, but ultimately it just seems like this simple, like this guy knows that love is great and that's more important than money. 
so therefore jump off a building. Like I, I kind of felt no, like it, it I, got a little it's, shallow. It's like um, and I'm trying to think. I can't remember exactly which religious preference has it, but it, they used a similar concept for the ending of Lost, where you after you die, you go to a limbo perspective. Uh, where, Hindu, yeah, Hinduism. It's Hinduism, yeah. yeah, where you where you go to a limbo perspective where you fix everything that's wrong with your life and then you're ready to move on and i feel like but this before was the that point. before that like, he didn't fix anything that was wrong with his life it was just like you know what love is great <laughs> i don't think he really fixed his self-indulgent no, ways he put in himself through something that made him then want to live again because he wanted to die yeah and the only and he, he put himself was, was through life. something but that see, brought him to a did, place where even, he wanted to live i'm not even going to disagree with that uh, uh, in terms of um if we were to talk about this abstractly with story, you're right. Like the idea of, oh my God, how do we get his dream to turn into a nightmare? Climaxing with her murder. Like it's intriguing. It is yeah. very compelling when he does that. But then they tell you exactly what happened and he understands it a hundred percent. So he loses all of his fear. So that at the end of that moment, which I think, Jeff, I know what you mean. Like sometimes it can be a real cop-out when you're dealing with, this kind of material and you say, oh, all of this stuff can be answered by love. Even though that might be true, I think good stories have showed us that you can pull that off and it can be true. But when he is on that roof at the very end and the tech support guy says, your audience is here to watch you leave. And he make amends, he makes amends with, with all of them. And the last one he makes amends with is her, where he understands so completely what he was doing with her this entire time I was, I had, I, I felt absolutely no curiosity for what was going to happen to him when he jumped off that roof because he answered all of his questions. And I mean, this is a personal thing maybe, but like when you wake up out of dreams, I think the most intriguing part about dreams, even the ones that seem like, oh my God, they were so real. I thought it was happening to me. It was like so real is that you do not have all the answers there in fact there are they tend to play on really base emotional instincts that are not based in uh any type of catharsis they usually bring up a lot of issues and make you act uh with like really primal kind of base instincts and it usually leaves you very confused when you wake up that's why you say oh my god i can't believe it was so real nobody wakes up out of a dream and says i just answered every single question i've ever fucking had yeah, I, I don't know where to go from there. That, that's yeah, true. I, I, mean, I, I think you're both right, because Dave, yeah. I'm with you. This movie was, it, it was very entertaining. It really was. And ultimately, some people are just going to be happy surprise. that he jumped off the building and then you're going to bed. And it's like, good movie, uh, great, yeah, moving I mean, on with my life. I mean, the takeaway from this is 42% tomato meter. Go fuck yourself, Rotten Tomatoes. This is a great film that pulls you into its narrative and then hits the spin cycle for me. Great's a strong so, word, but, yeah. I, but I do it, appreciate it. that. <laughs> you would really call this a great film? I would. Because I'm not shitting on it, dude. I don't... I really enjoyed yeah, it. We're being surprisingly negative. I feel but like ultimately the it was very entertaining. Is way more accurate. Seventy-two is good. Okay, seventy-two. I, I can. We can see. Yeah. Film fans, we, you. Our handles are in the episode description. Tell us what you think of Vanilla Sky, even yeah. if you haven't seen it in a while. Come we're very curious to hear what you hear about it. <laughs> Support Dave. Give John and I shit. Let's do it. Seventy-two yeah. is pretty good. All John right. would probably give it a forty-eight. I'd probably give it a seventy-two. Dave would probably give it a ninety. We're all over the place. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in. We need to announce the films that we're doing next week. Hey, John, of fuck you. The film year. <laughs> fuck you. 1968. We are going to be doing. Are you ready for this? 
John's really fucking happy because he refused to let us not do. We're going to bring it. 2001 A Space Odyssey. Woo! Yeah. I wonder if we like this film. I wonder what we're going to say about it. Yeah, we'll do it. It it changed a lot of things. John's going to give a lecture. I can't wait. Get your your notebook. Save it to Google Drive. Get that same piece of paper. That you saved for Vanilla Sky. Yeah. Then we're gonna do that. then we're gonna do Bullets, which was a huge Oscar surprise. A lot of a lot of Oscars. We're gonna do Bullet. That's B-U-L-L-I-T-T. Bullets, starring Steve McQueen. Bullet. And then we are gonna finish with our redemption, or was it really that bad? With Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Now Chitty Chitty Bang Bang is a pretty decent Rotten Tomato score, but although those reviews were like, I think this was made for kids, but it's fun. So we're going to go ahead and as full grown adults with beer in our system, <laughs> we're gonna talk about <laughs> Dick Van Dyke, owner of the worst British accent of all time, and Mary Poppins. We are going to do Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Anything else to say, or should we uh, leave it there? We have said enough, I think. (laughs) I think we did it. Until next week, see ya. Woo!